0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At feeling is it's if you can remember back when you were like seven or eight years old and and you're no christmas is around the corner but it's not quite there yet you've got this like deep desire and angst of like what presents are you going to get or is santa going to visit your house or are you going to get coal in your stockings or whatever that looks like like it's kind of that same type of feeling that the israelites had when they were expecting awaiting a messiah to come now for us we celebrate it for four and a half weeks For them, it was over 450 years that they were waiting and expecting a Messiah to finally come after God had finished speaking to them. And so over several thousand years, he had been giving promises that we'll see today, the assurances that there would be a Messiah to come. But then eventually he stopped talking, he stopped speaking. And what we know, closing the Old Testament from Malachi to the birth of Jesus in Matthew, it was 400 years of them waiting with angst. And so we celebrate this, we honor this, we remember this, because as we see in Hebrews 10.1, the writer says that the Old Testament serves as a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. We also see in Hebrews 8.5, speaking of the high priests in the Old Testament, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So the reason why I bring that up, and that's actually pulled from a snippet of our Advent guide that Josh and a team put together for us to kind of follow through over the next four and a half weeks. It gives you daily readings to go through. It gives you prayers to pray. It gives you songs to sing. It gives you activities to do with your family. It gives you deeper personal study for you to dive into these promises and assurances of Jesus. This is pulled from there, and the reason why I wanted to pull that specific part out of it, I think Zach Dearman was the one who put that in there, Uh, was specifically to draw our attention to the fact that God, throughout the entire Old Testament, was giving us promises and assurances and prophecies that, hey, there is someone coming that's going to fix everything that's broken. That everything from priests and rituals and laws and events and ceremonies and everything that they were doing in the Old Testament that God gave them to do were only serving as shadows of the true reality that would one day eventually come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so they could get these kind of glimpses. They would kind of get, if you think about it, like a preview to a movie or a trailer where you can kind of get an idea of what the movie is going to be before you go see it, that's exactly what they were doing. And so one of the examples that we also used this week, I gave uh, two of my boys, Ezra and Wyatt, uh, just two little flashlights, and and that bought me about 20 minutes of entertainment for them. Um, But I gave them two flashlights, and one of the things that I showed them how to do was turn lights off, and then take the light and shine it like either on your hand, and whenever you do that, it would cast this huge shadow upon the wall of this big hand. I mean, they thought that was amazing. Look how big my hand is. Um, And so one of the things that we're seeing in the Scriptures is that as God is shining His light through the person of Jesus Christ, it's casting a shadow over the entire Old Testament that is allowing them to see forms of Christ, characteristics of Christ, Uh, for them to be able to see uh, the heartbeat of who God is and what he's ultimately going to be providing for us in the person of Jesus. And so that when Jesus actually shows up on the scene, it doesn't catch anybody off guard, that it actually doesn't surprise them. This is what they were to be expecting because of the shadows that were being cast throughout the entire Old Testament. And so that's what I actually want to do today is Not look at all of them, because I'll show you here in a few moments that there are way more than we can even uh, cover today, or honestly, probably the rest of the existence of the district church. Um, But I'm going to pull out just a couple of them to show you so that, again, we can have assurance in the promise that Jesus is true, that He actually came, And that not only did he come one time in the form of a baby in a manger, but that he will also uh, guarantee his second promise, which is to come again to make all things new. And we will even kind of provide a little bit of implications of what that means for us. And so here's my question that I kind of want to put out there. If Advent is the arrival of Jesus Christ, then why did he have to come in the first place? Because I think that's really important for us to understand is okay. We know the story. We know that Jesus showed up as a baby in a manger. Uh, we know that he came to uh, two lowly parents, um, uh, Mary and Joseph. We know that there were there was no room for him in the inn. Like we know the typical kind of Luke chapter two story of Jesus, but oftentimes we don't necessarily get into the reason for him to come in the first place. And I know we always say Jesus is the reason for the season, but even when you dive into that, a lot of times people still don't know the reason for the season. They don't know why Jesus had to come in the first place. And so this is going to be very very Genesis, very Bible 101 when it comes to uh, kind of the four big buckets. If you were to look at Genesis to Revelation and you were to kind of create Four buckets of telling the entire narrative of the Bible. We have creation, we have fall, we have redemption, and then we have restoration. If you can grab or kind of grasp in your mind those four buckets in an elevator pitch, you can tell someone what the entire Bible is about that God created everything, that man broke it, that there was the fall, there was sin that occurred, and then he sent Jesus Christ to redeem everything and to fix everything. And then because of Christ, one day God will come in and restore all things and bring them back to the way that they were supposed to to be even before the fall ever occurred. And so that's kind of the big picture. And so what I want to do is just look at the creation and the fall To provide for us the reason why we need all these promises and assurances from the Old Testament that one day there would be Jesus who would come. And so if you get your Bibles, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And we're going to kind of flip around a little bit between Genesis 1 and 2 um, when it comes to kind of just skipping through some verses here. So Genesis 1... Starting in verse 1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I just want to stop there for a second. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all that we know, all that we feel, all that we taste, all that we smell, all that we hear, all that we touch, all that we experience. And I could go on and on and on. He is the essence from whom all things come. He created the order of the universe and its expanse down to the very details of each individual cell in your body. He created everything. There's nothing that exists outside of the creative mind and order of God. Everything exists from him. Now, one of the questions I get most is, why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why did he create in in, in the beginning? Why did he go about this process of, of creating everything? And there are a lot of theologians out there who believe that God created us for community, that he created us for community as though he was lacking and needed it. And I honestly have monumental problems with that, specifically what we read in the Bible. It would literally read in the beginning, you good back there? I don't know if, uh, Clinton, maybe you can help out a little bit on that. (laughs) I just feel like getting worse. Um, Anyway, I'll I'll keep going, but... Okay. Um, (coughs) found where I was. Okay, people believe that he created us for community. And if you were to think that, it would literally read that in the beginning God was bored. and just didn't have anything to do. And therefore thought, hey, let's create... Heavens and the earth. Let's create humanity. Like we're, we just don't know what we're doing. We, we're, we're kind of bored at this, and that's just not the truth. When you see in Genesis one twenty six, when it dives in a little bit deeper to creation, God's referring to Himself as "Let us make man in our image," and that's not like a schizophrenic us. This is God communing, uh, communicating and communing with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us come together and make creation. Let's make everything that exists. And what we know from that, what we can pull and deduce from that, is that God himself has existed in a perfect community, in perfect communion, in perfect unity for eternity before there was anything that existed. So before there was us, God was perfectly fine with himself. He was perfectly fine with the Son. He was perfectly fine with the Holy Spirit. He was perfectly fine as the Father. And they were existing as the one true God for eternity past. No need, no lacking, no want, no nothing other than they were existing. They were existing. And also as they were existing, when it came down into the creative order, and I think this is important for us to understand, they each had roles. They each had roles in the creative order. Well, one of the things that we know from God the Father is he's kind of like the, the blueprint genius. He's the one who is putting forth his will in order for everything to be created. And we know that the Son, Jesus, is then the active agent of creation. We see in John 1, 1 through 1-3, and verse 14, and I'll actually start with verse 14. But it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you're familiar with the John 1 passage, we know that that passage is referring to Jesus because Jesus is God who came down and dwelt among us, who put on flesh and came to live among us. What we see back in John 1, 1 through 3, speaking of this Jesus, in the beginning was this Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you see there, kind of again, that combination of the Word Jesus being with God the Father, but then also being God Himself. Trinitarian language here. But this is the important part to see He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so we know from Jesus as the active agent of creation is that without Jesus, nothing is made. Without Jesus, nothing is brought into life. And as we studied in Colossians in our series there in verses chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, which is, again, just another great Christological passage, which is the study of Jesus, it literally reads that everything in the universe, everything, was created for Jesus, through Jesus, and continues to remain what it is by the strength of Jesus. He literally sustains everything that exists. Clouds are clouds because Jesus says so. Water is water because Jesus says so. It rains when Jesus commands it to rain. It droughts when Jesus commands it to drought. Like everything is it because God through Christ says it is it. This gives more meaning to a statement in the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that doesn't just mean that what he says goes, this means that everything that is remains that it is by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So for example, last night we ate steak at our house, and I love steak if you weren't aware of that. Um, But when I bite into a steak and I taste the flavor, like that wasn't because I put some spices on it or I marinated it a certain way. Like that flavor palette is there because God created it, because Jesus thought it up, and that through him, he blessed us with that common grace of being able to enjoy the taste of steak. And if you're vegan in here, we had some green beans, and they were great, too. We also kind of lathered them up in bacon as well, and so that might have ruined it for you. But everything exists because Jesus. To bring it a little bit closer to home, I love what Matt Chandler in his book, To Live As Christ, says about this Jesus authority over all creation. When the Romans arrest Jesus, they grab him with hands that he has not only created, but was at the time sustaining. In essence, the power they use to grab him comes from him. With muscles that he powers, they stretch their hands back and slap his face. They use glands that he controls to work up the saliva to spit on him. They nail him with metal that he created into a tree that he spoke into existence. He is able to stop it at any moment and chooses not to, for us to receive his grace and his mercy. See, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. So we have the Father who wills creation, we have the Son who is the active agent of creation, but what about the Holy Spirit? that mysterious third person in the Trinity. What's his gig? And so God the Holy Spirit breathes life into creation. We see this in Genesis 1-2. We see this in Job 33-4 as well, that the Holy Spirit shows up quickly on the scene in creation. As God creates the heavens and the earth, it's the Father's will to create through the Son, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's role is to hover over creation and to breathe life where there is no life. Through Christ, everything exists, but it's through the Spirit of God that life is given to all creation. I've heard the analogy of a house being built before, that the Father draws the blueprints, Jesus is the contractor who builds it, but the Holy Spirit is the one who provides the utilities, the electricity, the gas, the water, etc., to make it livable. In Job 33, 4, as I referenced, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so we see that the Spirit of God is the active agent in bringing life where there is no life. Even our own salvation. Jesus, again, is the active agent doing the work of our salvation. And the Spirit of God is the one who brings to life within us this work, the gospel of Jesus. So in these first two chapters, what we see is the Godhead created everything to work together in a perfect and glorious way that would reflect his goodness and his holiness. If you were to read through Genesis 1 and 2, it literally reads in the Hebrew language uh, rhythmically. And what I mean by that is it would read like God created this, and he created this, and he created this, and it was good. And God created this, and he created this, and he created this, and it was good. It's rhythmic as it rolls through, almost kind of like a poem. And there was perfect shalom, which means perfect peace, it's not just a Jewish term. We can use it as well. And then he created the crown jewel of creation, which was mankind. We see in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, this creative narrative and story where God created mankind with a purpose. He created us to steward God's creation and to enjoy God in the process. Like literally, that is uh, in the Heber Catechism, one of the things you see there is that the chief aim of man is to enjoy God. Like that's simply it. He, he created us to enjoy him. And there's ways in which he's designed and ordered us to enjoy him. And that includes having purpose. And that includes having work. And that includes having relationship. And that includes having children. That includes all kinds of things that we are to take on as he's commanded us to do and to work and to toil and to steward while we at the same time are enjoying him in his fullness throughout that entire process. This is what God has created. And then as he's created male and female and as he's created them as we covered a few weeks ago to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over everything that is created, we then know that he also gave one rule. One rule in this perfect shalom, we see this in Genesis 2, 15 and 17, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One rule, I read an article one time by a guy who believed that God putting the tree in the garden was equivalent to him loading around in the chamber of his pistol and setting it on the table and telling his kids to not touch it. And his question was, doesn't that make him a terrible father? To that I would respond, depends on the type of pistol it was. No, I'm just kidding. But here's why I think the tree is in the garden. I think the tree is in the garden because from the beginning, God is instilling within us that obedience to God brings about the most joy. I truly believe it's that simple. Because it was not a hard-pressed rule. It was not an oppressive rule. It was literally, I've created everything for you to steward. And in stewarding, I know sometimes that can kind of be like a hijacked term that seems like it's uh, negative in a way or like something that you've got to work at. Like stewarding is essentially him saying, enjoy my creation. Enjoy all that I've gifted you with. Just don't do this one thing. Like that, It was not heavy-handed. We have way more rules now that he has added beyond that one. And so it's interesting to see that this idea of obedience to God, bringing about the most joy, that that is the very thing that they get tempted with when it comes to sinning was that they did not have access to the greatest amount of joy. That they were actually being robbed from it because of this one rule. When in essence, in the garden, God had given them full capacity to enjoy everything to its fullness. And was actually protecting them from any type of knowledge of evil by telling them not to do this one thing. Even that is a grace that God was giving to us so this shalom does not last long. Literally, we get two chapters in all of the Bible before it falls apart. And we see this in Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 3, 1-7. through 7. And I'm going to read through this one for you guys. Genesis 3, 1-7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now God actually never said that they can't touch it. Again, here she is adding rules to the rule. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. loincloths. First thing I want to start off with here is who is this serpent? Like where I thought we just had chapters one and two where there's this perfect peace, perfect creation. Where does the serpent come from in this garden? And Revelation twelve nine provides probably one of the best descriptions we have regarding the serpent. So I'm going to read it for you. Revelation twelve nine says and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him matthew 13:9 also refers to him as the evil one john 12:31 says he's the ruler of this world matthew 12:24 the Pharisees call him beelzebub the prince of demons and so somewhere between genesis 1 him creating the heavens and the earth In Genesis 3, from what we know in Daniel as well as in Revelation, we know that there is this war that goes on in heaven. And in this war in heaven, there's this angel, Lucifer, who was the most beautiful angel that God created. And in his beauty, wanted more. And essentially... His sin was demanding and wanting the throne of God. Pride. Wanting what God is. It wasn't enough for him to just enjoy God as his creator and as his father in heaven. But rather, he wanted everything that God possesses. He wanted the control. He wanted the rule. He wanted the throne. And so from there, he also then goes and... Um, Carouse a third of the angels that were also created to come against God. And as I kind of mentioned a few weeks ago when I was talking about parenting, uh, this would be like shepherd upstairs right now, who's five months old trying to pick a fight with me. Like it's just not going to go well for him. And this is not going to go well for the serpent either. You don't pick a fight with God and win. Regardless, it, no matter what the circumstances are, never is going to happen. And so God, without even sweating, Casts him down, throws him out, exiles him from heaven, and he lands here on earth and becomes the ruler of the world when it comes to the prince of the air. And he is given access and he is given privilege, per se, to be able to go and tempt, to be able to go and interact with others. And again, I think this draws back to this idea that just like he put a rule around a tree by him loosing Satan, serpent, devil, on the earth to be able to come and interact with us, again is drawing us back to this place where obedience to God comes about our most joy. That's where it's birthed. It would have been easy for God just to immediately have taken and cast him down to hell for eternity. Which, if you read the end of the book, is what's going to happen for Satan. He is not the... Uh, there's a TV show out right now uh, called Lucifer, which is the devil who basically took a time off from hell and is just living in Los Angeles, helping solve crime. Um, Very interesting show. Uh, But according to that show, he was the one who is ruling hell and is punishing everybody down there. And I think, honestly, a lot of people have that view of the serpent, the devil, Satan, that that is his role, that's what he's doing. And that is not what he is doing in hell. He is not ruling hell. He is not reigning in hell. He is not punishing people in hell. And this might be hard to hear. The wrath of God is doing that. God is the one who is punishing people in hell. God is the one who is reigning and ruling in hell. There is not a place in the heavens, in the earth, and under the earth, as the Bible talks about when it comes to hell, where God does not possess all authority and is not ruling and reigning. And that's why when a lot of times when you hear the gospel preached and proclaimed, it's God saving us not only from our sins and our evil and our issues, but he's also saving us from his own wrath. Like, that's what God is doing. It's hard to comprehend that God is saving us from himself, but that's the truth that he is doing, is that if you are outside of Jesus, his wrath is directly geared towards you and is facing you and is seeing you as a sinner who is deserving of his death. And that's exactly what hell is but because of Jesus Christ coming and being the substitute for us. And that's why you see that at the cross, the wrath of God is what is satisfied when he, the Father, crushes his own son by directing all of his wrath towards us, towards Jesus And therefore, God is pleased and satisfied to no longer direct his wrath towards us, but direct it towards Jesus. Jesus pays it in full because he dies on the cross. And when he resurrects, he is now able to give us his righteousness. Therefore, when God looks at you, he sees you as pleased. And because he sees you as pleased, like he sees his son, Jesus, guess what? You do not get to go to hell. You get to go to heaven. That's the gospel. That's the message. And so this serpent, this devil, right now is literally getting to experience for himself the greatest amount of grace that he's going to have before he comes to his own doom, which will be his eternity in the end. And you can already read the end of that. You can read that in Revelation, where there is another war, another battle, where the Satan continues to do what he only knows to do, and that is just wage war and try to defeat Jesus, try to defeat God, and God is literally going to flick him into the ocean of fire where he will spend the rest of his eternity suffering. So this serpent comes into this garden and delivers to Eve this message that if she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they'll ultimately be like God. He's bringing her down with him because that's what he already tried to do in heaven and it didn't work out for him. That's all Satan really has to do or offer is for people to, to, to end up with the same fate that he has. They don't, he doesn't want people experiencing grace from God and mercy from God. He doesn't want people enjoying God. And so all he has to offer is to drag others down with him. And that's exactly what's happening here in the garden. And I know a lot of times when it comes to this, people want to throw Eve under the bus because it was Eve who grabbed the fruit and ate the fruit. But we got to remember, just like I mentioned a few weeks ago, if you were able to, to tune into that one when we were all on Zoom, Adam's right there with her. And one of the the terms that I use for Adam's role within their complementarian relationship is that Adam has the responsible authority for the family. And what that means is that if it goes awry, it's Adam's fault. And that's exactly what we see happening here, is that Adam wasn't off to work and then came home and was like, you know, I just didn't know what was for dinner and I just... I ate what she fixed, and I had no idea. No, it says literally in the scriptures that he was with her. And so one of the things that I talked about a few weeks ago was this idea of passivity, which is is just as much a sin, as if you were a man who was trying to exercise abusive authority. Because abusive authority in a relationship is not biblical. But also passivity in a relationship is not biblical. And so what we see here is that Adam and Eve both together as one sin. And then we know creation fractures in this moment. Once Adam and Eve brought sin into this world due to their rebellion at the tree, at that moment all that God had created, the perfect shalom, the perfect peace, the perfect rhythm from the expanse of the universe to the depths of individual molecules, it all Fractured. And so relationships became hostile, shame came flooding in, all sorts of anxieties and fears overwhelmed the soul, and death began its reign on earth. And this is the reason why news has bad news to share. This is where, this is where COVID comes from. This is why there's pain, there's disease, there's murder, there's natural disasters, there's pandemics, there's disagreements, and on and on I could go because creation broke. It fractured. And so what happens next? What we see next is God then pursues us for repentance. Look at this in verses 8 through 13. This is after they sinned and they ran and they hid. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, here God pursues us in our sin and provides opportunity for us to repent. This is not as if God and Adam and Eve are playing some type of cosmic game of hide and seek. Like that is not going on here. The Lord knew exactly where they were and he's offering them the opportunity to come to him when he calls for them. He's still welcoming them to come to him in his presence despite the fact that they have now rebelled against him. So the questions that God's asking are not for God to learn anything. He's not coming in like what we as parents do when I hear the boys screaming in the other room and I walk in and say, okay, who punched who? Like, what's going on here? Like, I need some facts. Like, God's not doing that. He knows He's giving them the opportunity to clear their consciences by repenting and saying what they've done that is wrong. We also see the first effects of sin in Adam and Eve. One of the first things we see from the damage of sin is that it just simply makes you dumb. It just makes you dumb. Adam and Eve hidden the trees from the creator of the trees. Sin makes you dumb. Now with Adam and Eve, we literally get two chapters in the honeymoon stage is over. Again, like I said earlier, everyone always wants to blame Eve for this. And Adam is the first one to do it. The reason why we know Adam has responsible authority is because who does God go to in the garden first to deal with their sin? He goes to Adam. He goes to Adam. Adam. And he asks Adam, giving him the opportunity to repent for the family. What did you do? Did you eat of the tree? And instead of Adam taking responsibility for the family, like Jesus takes responsibility for the church, Adam blames his family. And he says that it was the woman whom you gave to be with me. Then Eve does the exact same thing. You see, sin causes us to not want to take ownership for our sin. It wants us to cast it on something else, an external circumstance that was going on. Something else is what caused me to be a bad person. Something else is, it was the, my upbringing, my parents, they, you don't know the kind of parents I had, and because of the way that they raised me, now I'm a terrorist. No one's willing to take ownership for their sin. So Adam throws Eve under the bus. Eve then throws the serpent under the bus. And so the first thing I want to see here is what does God do? And this will begin our assurance. Our assurance. What we see God do is what's called the proto-evangelion, and that just means the first gospel. We see God himself preach the first gospel. We see this in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. After God hears their their lies and their sins, the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you above all livestock "'and above all beasts of the field. "'On your belly you shall go, "'and dust you shall eat of it "'all the days of your life. "'I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your offspring and her offspring.'" He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is a very interesting passage, a little verse here that God provides for us where he literally tells us exactly what's going to happen in the rest of the story. Even though Adam and Eve broke creation, they fractured it, he doesn't tell them that they are the ones who are going to fix it. But rather, he points to one who will come through the offspring. Through Eve's offspring, there will come one. And Verse 15 really is the, the most important part of this entire passage. Where it says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God, speaking to the serpent, tells him that there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the woman's offspring. But in dealing with those offspring, there will be a he, a singular male, that will bruise your Satan's head. And that Satan will bruise his, again, singular male, his heel. And this is referring to this battle that will happen at a cross. Where Satan thinks that he is actually destroying Jesus at the cross that he was able to rally his troops and he was able to deceive one of the apostles and that he was able to pull them all together with the people yelling crucify him and the priest condoning it and the government behind it and having everybody at this one show, Satan has finally won and got what he wanted. If Jesus has all authority and Satan is the one who kills him, then Satan now gets the throne. And that's what he thinks. But he doesn't understand that the very methods that he is employing to destroy Jesus is actually destroying himself. Because that's how God wrote the story. It was not a backup plan. From the very beginning to Adam and Eve, God declares that the way Satan is going to be crushed, his head, that's a death blow, is going to be through the bruising of the hill of the one crushing his head, which will be Jesus. And as we know, the reason why we can view the death of Jesus as a bruise is because we know it's temporary. And that three days later, this bruised hill that was crushed resurrects and comes back to life. This is the first gospel, the first good news that Adam and Eve are hearing that before God even deals with them, victory is pronounced from God over Satan in person and work of Jesus Christ. That's good news. And this is what they, Adam and Eve and their offspring, have as an assurance to look forward to, to await the arrival of a Savior who will fix what they just broke. And that's what they get to rest in. God, from the moment of our rebellion, has already mapped out the plan for redemption. He has set the course to reconcile and fix what's been broken. He's put it into motion. Verse 15, he proclaims a victory. And we actually see in verse 22 where he already begins the sacrifices, which are the foreshadowings of this victory. You see, even Adam and Eve were inadequate to try to fix their current situation of their shame and their guilt. And their nakedness. And so what did they do? They tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves. And God's looking at that and says, you know what? You need to understand here that anything that you try to do to fix it is going to be inadequate. Let me step in again. And he actually does the first blood sacrifice where he clothes them with animal clothing. To again point to the fact that, look. Your sin is deserving of death. And so I'm going to do the first one and I'm going to kill something and shed its blood in order to cover your sins temporarily. To then point them to one day Jesus shedding his blood to ultimately forgive them their sins once and for all. And so this is the first assurance that is given in the Old Testament. And there are another 456 assurances from God throughout the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ coming and bringing salvation, redemption, and restoration of all things. And so I actually have a little graphic that I want to show you real quick, if we can get that up on the screen. so You might be looking at this and thinking, okay, I have no idea how to read this. But what you're actually seeing here is is just a grid from Old Testament, this is Genesis. So this is representing books of the Bible, chunks of books of the Bible. And this over here on this side is representing the four Gospels. Four Gospels here and then, and then the rest of it here over to Revelation. And what we're seeing here is every prophecy that was spoken of of the Messiah in the Old Testament and then every word that it's tied to the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's a wonderful, wonderful graphic to be able to see that God had the whole thing planned out from the very beginning and knew exactly how He was going to write the story and which characters that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, the adversaries that were going to be involved to try to thwart this plan, the agents involved that God was bringing on to execute the plan, and then ultimately how all of this ties into the person and work of Jesus Christ in 33 years. It's truly amazing what God has done to assure us that he's going to fix what we broke. I mean, and and let me maybe kind of put it in this perspective for you. 456 predictions, prophecies, assurances, promises, whatever word you want to use for them, that were given in the Old Testament telling us about Jesus Christ what are the probabilities of him actually pulling off all 456 prophecies? For all of these to actually be fulfilled over here, what are the probabilities of that? And there was actually a study done um, at, at Westmont College in California. There were 600 university students who pulled together to do this study who worked the probabilities of 456 prophecies coming true. And so they started off with just one. Let's look at one prophecy. Uh, Let's look at Micah predicting Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. This prediction came 700 years before Jesus was born. What was the prophecy of that, or probability of that coming true? And so what they did uh, was they actually looked at the time of Bethlehem, the population of Bethlehem, and Jesus being born in that area. And what they found was it would be one in 300,000 chance that a man could be born in Bethlehem. Not exactly odds that I would bet on. That would be similar to, I know, for example, at the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500, there were 350,000 people who attended it. Obviously, that's not going to happen anytime soon. um, But there were 350,000 people there. The probability of Jesus doing this would be like me going to one person there and putting an X on them and then blindfolding you and saying, okay, walk around the entire stadium and select that one person that's got the X on them. That's the chances of Jesus being born in Bethlehem during that day and age. The students then increased the prophecies to eight to determine the probability. And they conservatively came up with a number of 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. And the way that that would be kind of equivalent to us today would be if you were to take a quarter and mark an X on it and then take a bunch of quarters, 10 to the 17th power, and you were to fill them or just scatter them over the state of Texas, you would fill up the entire state of Texas two feet deep with quarters. That's 10 to the 17th power. So mark an X on one of them, blindfold yourself, start walking around Texas and pick up that one X. That's the probabilities of Jesus fulfilling eight of the 456 prophecies. They then took it to 48 prophecies. What would be the probability of that? That's one in 10 to the 157th power. 157 zeros following it. They had no uh, no example on the macro level to be able to figure that out, and so they had to go to the micro level. And so what they actually did was um, they went down to, and I want to make sure I get it right here. Uh, they went down to electrons using microelectrons, which again are smaller than atoms. If you were to take ten to a one hundred fifty seven power electrons and you were to put them in a line just just right next to each other put them in a line it would be about an inch long all right now that's that doesn't sound too crazy right but if you were to count the electrons until you got to the end of it and if you were counting 250 of them per minute it would take you 19 million years to get to the end of the inch And if you were to put an X on one of them and pick it, that would be the probability of 48 prophecies. He did 456 prophecies from the Old Testament. Like, if it was just the one in 300,000 chance, like, that's enough for me to be like, I'll believe it. Maybe there's something to this. Like, I, I come from a family that loves the History Channel. Like, it's, you know, any type of conspiracies. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on those kinds of things. I mean, respectfully. <laughs> but this, there, there's, there's nothing left to conspiracy at this point. Because of the level of assurance that God is willing to go to grant us. I mean, is it even faith at that point? So many times people say it's blind faith. It's blind faith. It's blind faith. You just don't know enough of the Bible if you think it's blind faith. I mean, this is guarantee. This is guarantee. And I I can provide you that article to be able to connect all of those. If you want to go through and just read them, like if you want to go on just a personal study over the next year, maybe do like one and a half, two prophecies a day and just read the connection of those to be able to see that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity who has existed from eternity past, who came to this earth as promised 456 times over a span of 4,000 years. He came 2,000 years ago in the form of a baby in a manger. And the only reason why they didn't see it when he came was because they still weren't listening. They had, like Eve, created rules around the rules and prophecies around the prophecies. They were still looking for a king who was going to come on a throne rather than a king who was going to come in a manger. And so they missed it. Love ultimately came in humility. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, he would come, and this is just a preview for the weeks ahead. He would come as Isaiah 53 says, a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus does possess all authority. Jesus is, as we sang earlier, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is reigning and ruling. But this Messiah that was promised 456 times to come was not coming for 33 years to sit on a throne and to rule with a scepter and to command and tell people to serve Him. He came as a baby in a manger, lowly and humble, in order to literally take on everything that we are experiencing due to our sin. So we think 2020 is hard. And I get it. It is. We were just talking last night. Like, I mean, it was kind of ironic. 2019, we were like, let's just come on. 2019, get over with can't wait for 2020 what a beautiful sound that is and then now we're 2020 get away get out of here go like just let's get to 2021 like i'm sorry we're not promised anything better in 2021 or 2022 or 2023 because we're not going to get our hope from what creation provides we're not going to get our satisfaction from what creation provides. What we're promised is that there's going to be despising and rejecting, and there's going to be sorrows, and we're going to be acquainted with grief, and there's going to be people who hide their faces from us. There's going to be esteem stricken and smitten. There's going to be so many things that are oppressed and afflicted within our lives that do our sin, is there because we put it there. We broke it. We fractured it. Why COVID? It's because of us. It's just true. And the only thing that we have hope in is that Jesus has come to take on all that we experience. Not only the sin that we commit that he will become on the cross, but even the the confounding variables that come with our sin. He placed on himself and lived it out throughout his entire life. I mean, he literally, literally has taken upon himself everything that hurts us and that is killing us and that's destroying us. He places it on himself so that he can give us his righteousness. Man, that's not only the assurance that they were looking forward to, but that's the assurance we have today. Is that, you know what? Like tomorrow, you might get a phone call and have some incredible bad news from a family member. You might own a business that's going awry. You might be trying to prepare for a new family and that's not working out the way that you want it to work out for. Like it's, you might have started a career and it's still going south. Like, you can't quite figure it out. Like, it's, you can't just enjoy the city like you used to because it's boarded up. Like, there's so many things right now that we just don't have any assurance in. But there's one thing that we can give you assurance in, and that is Christ. It's Christ. As the psalmist says, like my heart, my flesh may fail, but he is my portion forever and in him I am satisfied. I'm satisfied. Like we feel, the psalmist in Psalm 42, when he is saying, my tears have become my food. Downcast is my soul. I eat the tears I've cried but he says i'm satisfied in the lord i'm satisfied in the lord our prayer is that as we walk through advent is that it's just simply that us drawing our attention back to this story of the israelites anxiously awaiting a savior And they had to wait a whole lot longer than we did. Anxiously awaiting a Savior. And we get to look at the story in the middle where He has come. And He's fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. And now He's given us one more. I'm going to come again. And when I come back this next time, I'm restoring all things. I'm wiping away every tear. I'm getting rid of all the pain. At that point, he will come on a throne. But he invites us to his throne as well to rule and reign alongside of him as co-heirs of Jesus. Everything that is his, he's giving to us. And so as we look back at how they waited, we also now get to use that for how we are to wait. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this news. We thank you that you are a God of truth. We thank you that you do not... You, you do not hide secrets. I mean, you reveal mysteries. You, you are one who, who prides yourself in revealing your son Jesus to us. And we know that you have been doing that from Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi throughout the entire Old Testament. You have provided over 456 prophecies, promises, and assurances to the people... That they have something to look forward to. That they have a Savior, a Messiah, an anointed one who is coming to wash away all of their iniquities and all of their sins. He's coming to fix what they've broken. And we get to rest today seeing that that has already happened. That in our story, 2,000 years removed from it, Jesus has come And he has lived the life and he has fulfilled everything in your Old Testament law and in the prophets. And that he died the death that we deserved and that he rose three days later, guaranteeing his victory over sin, death and evil. And he is now granting to us that same resurrection that for those who die with Christ. We are brought forth in a new life. We have a new identity. We are a new creation. And we are able to now say no to sin and yes to Jesus every single day. And that is what gives us the greatest assurance for our lives and the greatest satisfaction. So Father, my prayer for us is that we understand that. And that not only do we understand it, that we, as it says in the Catechism, our chief aim is to enjoy you. May we look to find that in you this season and not in whether or not we get to spend time with family, whether or not we get to have the right presence, whether or not we get to give the right gifts. It's not about those things. We just want to enjoy you, Lord. we to enjoy you in your fullness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at at infothedistrict.church?